0: Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Our oldest daughter Adele was 12 at the time and our youngest daughter Annika was 4. But the milestone we came to was the day of Adele's baptism. Uh, It was at a church I was pastoring at, so I had the privilege to take her through the waters of baptism, and it was a really exciting day. And so on that day, our 12-year-old gave us great reason for joy, but on the same day, our four-year-old, not so much. And so I want to tell you a bit of a story about what happened that day. Uh, Kim and I were getting ready, and we both had a shower, and we were getting changed, uh, ready for this exciting milestone in our family and in Adele's life, getting ready to go to a night service. And we got out of the shower, and Kim, back in those days, was in the habit of taking off her wedding ring, her engagement ring, her watch, and her earrings, and she would leave them on the bench. Now, she had a shower the day before, and she left them on the bench, and because it was a lazy Saturday, she hadn't put it back on, and it wasn't until Sunday afternoon when we were getting ready to go to church that she went to put all of her jewelry back on, and she realized that it wasn't there on the bench where she normally leaves it. And so at that particular time of life, Annika was four years of age and she was in the habit of hiding stuff. And so she would take our, you know, keys and our wallet and all that sort of stuff. And she thought it was a great, uh, exciting joy to do all that sort of stuff. We didn't really share the sentiment, um, but she was really enjoying doing it at that stage of her life. And so as soon as the jewelry was missing, um, we smelled a rat. And so we called her in and we said, Annika, come in. And we said, where is mummy's jewelry? Do you know where it is? And she's like, did you hide it? Where is it? And she went over and she pointed down the toilet. Now I said, now don't be silly. It's not in the toilet, is it? Tell Daddy it's not in the toilet. She goes, so where did you hide it? Under the bed. And so I go to the bed and I, I get everything out of the bed and I'm pulling out boxes and I'm going through everything for about 10 minutes searching high and low under the bed and, and by the end of the 10 minutes there was nothing there. And so we kicked it all back under the bed. Does anyone else use the bed like that? You know, There's a lump in the mattress but it looks neat in the bedroom. So we kicked it all back and I said, Annika, where's the jewellery? And so she said, in mum's cupboard. And she pointed over to where Kim's shoes were. Now for all the guys here, you know that's like the labyrinth, isn't it? Once you you get to that space where the Wife's shoes are. That could be a never-ending story. And so I go in there and I'm pulling out all these shoes, some shoes I've never seen before, shoes still with price tags on them. And I'm pulling out all these shoes. I'm looking in every one. And there's, I found everything there. I mean, I found, you know, it's a labyrinth. I found David Bowie. I found everything else. But I did not find the jewelry. And so we're like, Anika, where is it? We're running late by this stage, and we're like, we need the jewelry. And so she says, on the couch. So we all run out to the couch, and we're pulling off the cushions, and I found KFC from the night before, which is still good. So I had that, and there was popcorn and chips, and there was five-cent pieces. There was everything there except the jewelry. And so this time it was getting really serious, and who knows that the rule as a parent that you never bribe your children, right? Wrong. (laughs) There's times where it's absolutely appropriate, and this is one of those times And I got down on my knees and I eyeballed Annika, and I said, for the love of God, where is the jewelry? Do you know where it is? And I said, if daddy gives you a big block of chocolate, if you find the jewelry, will you tell us? And she's like, and so she gets up and she leads us down the passageway back to the same location where we started. But this time she got out the toilet brush and she started poking down the hole. Wow. And it was the moment I knew that the wedding ring, the engagement ring, the watch and the earrings had been flushed down, never to be seen again. Now, that was really difficult, particularly for the engagement ring, because we'd melted down gold from family rings, and we'd taken diamonds from grandparents and all sorts of people, and Kim had designed the ring, and so it obviously had some very sentimental value, and we were quite disappointed about it. Now, I need to tell you something I'm not proud of, but I actually rang Thompson's Road Sewerage Plant, and I said... I'm coming down. My wife has flushed the ring and I'm coming down to get it. And he said, you can't come and get it. You just we don't do that. I said, it's gone in, it's got to come out. Just stand at the end of the pipe and catch it. It's coming. It should be there in a couple of days and I'll be there to pick it up. And and I really hadn't thought through it because you know if I hadn't found it, I mean I'm picturing myself in one of those bionuclear suits in a snorkel, you know, going through trying to find the ring. And if I had found it, I don't know what I would have done. I'd be like, Kim, guess what? Yes, found it. Come here, let me put your earrings back in. It doesn't really work, does it? But I wasn't thinking it through because the point of the story is this, that that day we lost some stuff that was very precious to us. Today, in the parable I just read, is pretty much the exact opposite. Instead of losing something precious... This man found something incredible, incredibly precious. In today's Bible reading, we heard a parable that describes this occasion, that it, he didn't lose something, but he stumbles across something magnificent. It's a precious jewel, and it's so stunning that he is captivated by it uh, to the point that he takes everything else he owns so he can get enough money to buy the field with the precious treasure in it. Now, it may have been our engagement ring. I'm not sure, but it was something very, very precious, To the point that everything else he had, which was so important to him, before he found this precious jewel is gone, and this is now all that he longs for. This is how precious this jewel was. This is one of many parables that Jesus tells to describe the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. So the first question we need to ask today is, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's a term that can be interchanged with the term the kingdom of God, and it basically just means wherever God reigns or rules. That is the kingdom of God. At Bible College, we were taught that the kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet. In other words, Jesus in his earthly ministry initiated the kingdom, and so the kingdom of God is here, it's present, it's in our midst, it's now. And you might think, well, how could that possibly be right? If the kingdom of God is here, and I watched the news last night, and I saw a busted, broken world, and I feel like I'm, you know, emerged in a world full of sin, how could the kingdom of God possibly be here? Well, the kingdom of God is now, but in many ways it's not yet. John Piper says about the kingdom that many of its blessings are here to be enjoyed now, but many of them are not yet here. Some of its power is available now, but not all of it. Some of the curse and misery of this old age cannot be overcome, uh, can be overcome by the presence of the kingdom, but some of it cannot be. The decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the King Jesus in his death and resurrection, but the war is not over. Sin must be fought, Satan must be resisted, sickness must be prayed over and groaned under, and death must be endured until the second coming of the King and the consummation of the kingdom." I love it how Jesus tells us that we're to pray. He says, pray like this. This is the start of his prayer. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a beautiful prayer to pray, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said that he was the light Of the world, and now he says that we are the light of the world. This is our job as redeemed people. And so, how do we see the kingdom of God now in the broken world that we live in? Well, the key is through the lives that God's people live. As we live lives of love and joy and peace and compassion and grace, his kingdom comes here on earth uh, through that in our circumstances of our lives. This is our role as redeemed people. We're the light of the world, bringing a glimpse of a future kingdom into a present reality. But in a broken, fallen world, surrounded by sin will only ever be glimpses until Jesus returns. The kingdom of God is God's dream for his creation. His dream for creation is the kingdom of God, and it's a vision of something greater than we currently or will ever experience in this life. But when Jesus comes... We will see the consummation of his kingdom. It will be fully established. Death and sin will be banished eternally. And as we read in the glorious kingdom vision of Revelation chapter 21, there will be no more death. There will be no more crying or mourning or pain. For the old order will pass away and God will make all things new. We will live in the awesome magnificent presence of a God who is love in unblemished relationship with him forever. This is our hope, and let me tell you, church, it's a magnificent hope to have. This is what God has promised us in the future. We can see glimpses of it now, but we will see it in its establishment, in its fullness on that day that Christ returns. It's a wonderful thing. This is the now, but not yet kingdom of God. Today we're in week four of our Brick series And we're looking at our fourth topic today. So far we've looked at prayer and fasting, we've looked at vision, we've looked at faith and today we're looking at sacrifice. As I read through this brief parable, there were three things I noticed that I think we can learn about the sacrifice this man made for his precious pearl and when we consider that, it may just help us to ponder how sacrificial we are in comparison when it comes to our most precious pearl, the kingdom of God. And so there's three areas I want to touch on today. First of all, I want to talk about the vision of sacrifice. Second, I want to talk about the cost of sacrifice. And thirdly, I want to talk about the attitude of sacrifice. So let's start by looking at the, king, the vision of sacrifice. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. It's clear from this parable that the man in the parable parable got a vision of something new. The man found a treasure hidden in a field. Now, it was common in biblical times for treasure to be hidden. Um, They had bankers, but they didn't have banks. And so people would take a shovel and they would dig a big hole and they'd take their most precious possessions and they'd bury them in the ground where no one else could hopefully find them. Now, we don't know what this man was doing. Perhaps he was digging for treasure in another field or maybe he was stumbling across something that had been poorly buried. But either way, he discovers something that is more precious than anything he's ever seen before. Now, you may have had an experience like this in life, where you've encountered something precious for the first time. Perhaps it's when you met your husband or wife for the first time. A few weeks ago, I conducted the funeral of my nana, which was a sad occasion, but as I prepared for it, I had the privilege of sitting down with my granddad and hearing about a lot of stuff in their life that I hadn't heard before. They'd been married for 69 years, so there are a lot of really precious memories as he recounted his story. But granddad told me one particular thing, it's a moment Um, And it was the moment that he realized Nana was the lady he was going to marry. And it was a moment that happened over 70 years ago, but he remembers it like it was yesterday. I have trouble remembering seven minutes ago, but he remembers this, this moment 70 years ago, or 70 years plus, and he remembers it like it was yesterday. It was the moment that he was crossing George Street in Launceston, and Nana was crossing in the opposite direction, and their eyes made contact, and they waved at each other. And in that moment, he knew that he had laid eyes on the most precious woman he'd ever seen, and that he was going to marry that girl no matter what. And he was telling me about this story. And I'm very grateful that he followed through on that inkling or that Holy Spirit leading, because if he didn't, I wouldn't exist, and most of the second row wouldn't exist either. And so we're very grateful that he followed this little nudging. Um, But one of the interesting things he told me is that, When he arranged that date that night with Nana, he already had a date. My granddad, we call him Stud Muffin, but he had another date ready to go. And so the first thing he did is he went straight around to that girl's house and he said, I'm really sorry, but I can't go on a date with you tonight. And she said, Can we do it tonight? And he said, No, I can't do it ever. I've found someone else. And I'm, I'm really sorry but I'm asking someone else on a date. So he went off to my nana's house and he asked my nana out for a date that night and they went out and really the rest is history. Granddad's life changed because he got a vision that was more valuable and more precious than anything else he'd ever seen before. When a man in this parable gets a vision, he's willing to sacrifice everything else for it. It becomes his treasure, it becomes his passion, it becomes his priority. He sets his attention and his affection on this one thing. And if he has to lose everything else, he does the mass in his head and he says it's worth it to gain this one precious thing. It's all that matters to him. It's an incredible sacrifice. But as we look at the passage, that's not how he sees it. He sees this as the only logical thing to do. It seems irrational to us. But for him, it's like, no, 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 no. This makes perfect sense. I've got to have it and I'll sacrifice everything to obtain it sacrifice only makes sense in our lives when greater weight is given to something else let me say that again sacrifice only makes sense in our lives when greater weight is given to something else one thing we love to do as a family is go to the park and we love playing on the seesaw it's always a bit of fun when the kids get on it they're a similar kind of weight and they could make it work but they think it's really funny when all of them jump on one end of the seesaw and i jump on the other end and i still weigh more eating too much chocolate in the last few years. But they think that's really funny. But when it's just me and Lenny at the park, if he's sitting on one end and I jump on the other end, it actually catapults him from the parking officer all the way back over the train lines to our house in Pakenham. It, it, it's a huge difference and there's a seismic shift because I weigh a lot more than Lenny. The weight is transferred. This is what is happening in the mind of this man in the parable. The weight in his mind is transferred. His priority was for the things that he had, but once he got a new vision, it shifted to a whole new perspective. It catapulted him. The scales changed. His priorities moved. His affections were transformed, and his vision changed. It was a seismic shift. The weight was transferred. His life was transformed, and he'll never be the same again. The seesaw shifted. and This is what it should happen in our lives when we get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. The priorities in our life should shift. The kingdom of God should become the most weighty thing in our lives, the thing that we're willing to sacrifice for. But unless we lift our eyes, unless we fix our gaze on the promised future we have in Christ, it will never make sense sacrificing. But when we get a vision of that future, sacrifice is actually the only thing that makes sense. When we get a vision of the kingdom, our time, our energy, our talents, our finance, our resource, our possessions are no longer seen as of ultimate importance, but rather as provision from God to be invested into his eternal kingdom. The Apostle Paul got this revelation. He had an eternal vision. And if you have a look at Philippians 3 in your own time, I'll read it to you. But this is what he says, referring to the things he's achieved and how in a worldly sense it would make sense to put his hope in those things. He says these words. He says, "If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church; as for righteousness based on the law, faultless." What he's saying is that his pedigree is faultless. He has done all the right things according to Jewish customs. He's a man, if anyone should brag about their heritage and what they've done, it should be this guy. But he says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is a shifting scale. What was so important took the weight, but now Jesus, he's got this surpassing glory that's become more important for him. He says, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of what Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is in their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's a big but, and I will not lie. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the vision of the kingdom that the Bible urges you and I as followers of Christ to have. And when we see it, sacrifice is the only thing that makes sense. As the hymn writer Helen Lemel once said, turn your eyes Look full in his Wonderful and the things Wonderful will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That was much better than Singer. <laughs> much better. That's a vision of sacrifice. And when we get a glimpse of the kingdom, the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory of grace glory and grace. That's the vision of sacrifice. What about the cost of sacrifice? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. I want you to picture yourself in this story. I want you to picture yourself. Imagine that you found something so amazing that you pack up everything you own and you head down to Josh Cordes, who now works at Cash Converter's, And you go and meet up with him and you take everything, all the goods from your house... You drive up your car and your caravan, you take your superannuation, you've got your jewellery, you've got your framed secure Kilda premiership jumper which doesn't exist, but if it did, you could take it down. You take everything down there that's precious to you and you rock up to cash converters and you say, Josh, come and check all this out and you say, what would I get for this? And because it's cash converters, you'll probably say $12.50 and so you you hand it all over and you take the $12.50 and you go and invest that into this one thing that now means everything to you. I wonder for you, what would that thing be? Because in this parable, it says that thing should be the kingdom of God that we'd be willing to lay our lives down for, that we'd be willing to invest everything into. If we lost everything, the one thing we'd hold on to would be to be part of the kingdom of God. What was the cost of the sacrifice? Well, the cost was everything that he owned. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Man on Fire. Has anyone seen that movie? Three people, that's great. (laughs) Great movie, Denzel Washington and a really young Dakota Fanning. Great acting. It's very violent, lots of bad language, so I better warn you about that. But it is uh, in Mexico, um, in the circles where people were abducting children for ransom, and so it's kind of all in context. And in the movie Denzel Washington is a man called John Creasy. Uh, John Creasy is a burnt-out alcoholic. Ex CIA and former US Marine Corp., who at the start of the movie visits one of his longtime friends, Paul Rayburn, who runs a security firm in Mexico. Now, Creasy's really good at what he does, and so Rayburn gets him to join the firm. And because of the very uh, extremely high rate of kidnappings in Mexico City, um, he is hired by a wealthy businessman called Samuel Ramos, and he hires Creasy through his friend Rayburn to guard the nine year old daughter that he has called Peter. And so his job is to guard this little nine-year-old girl. And she's a beautiful little girl. And at first, Creasy is a very hardened, alcoholic guy. And so he pushes her away, and he's quite cruel to her. But over time, this beautiful relationship develops. She basically melts his heart. And he becomes like a surrogate dad to this little girl, teaches her how to swim, and takes her to all her various lessons. And one day, he takes her to her piano lesson, And as they walk out, they are ambushed by a bunch of gunmen who try to kidnap Peter. Now, Creasy kills four of the kidnappers, including two corrupt policemen, in a shootout. But he shot himself multiple times, and he collapses from his wounds, and the abductors eventually escape with Peter. Now, Creasy is put into hospital And he's there for a few days, um, and he sort of sneaks out before fully recovering. But before he does, he swears a promise to Peter's mum that he will get revenge on every last person involved in her daughter's abduction. And so the rest of the movie is basically about all of that. Eventually, he tracks down the abductor, a man called Daniel Sanchez, and after breaking into the home of Sanchez's ex-wife and kids, he is shot by Sanchez's brother, but he manages to trap him at the same time. And so it turns out that Peter is still alive. And they strike a deal that if Creasy hands over the brother and himself, they will let Peter go. And so, one of the final scenes of the movie, there is this powerful moment where the kidnappers release Pete, Peter. Peter, not Peter. And they're out in the middle of the desert, and they let this girl out of the car, surrounded by all these thugs. And they take off the blindfold, and she adjusts her eyes. And as she does, she looks over to a bridge in the distance, and she sees Creasy standing on the bridge. And she starts running and she screams at the top of her lungs, Creasy, Creasy, Creasy. And she gets to him and she jumps into his arms and he holds her and he asks her if she's okay and she says yes. And then he points over to a car in the distance and he says, your mum is waiting in the car. Go there and she's going to take you home. And, and little Peter says, where are you going, Creasy? And Creasy says, I'm going home as well. And he walks over in a really moving scene And he goes into the arms of his captors to be killed in a moment of incredible sacrifice. And it's a really stirring scene. And I think as Christians, we watch a movie like that and we see a scene like that. And our emotions are stirred because they point our eyes to a greater sacrifice. The center of the Christian message is the greatest act of sacrifice the world has and ever will see. Where the hero of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself, The sinless son of God, God in human form, the infinite, all-powerful, creator God, not only entered his finite creation, but he gave up his life dying on the cross in the place of the very people who hung him there. He died in the place of you and me for those that had turned their backs on him, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus on the cross modelled what the Greek word is, agape love. It's unconditional and it's self-sacrificial love. Jesus died in our place in the most extraordinary act of sacrifice that we will ever see. The man in this parable sacrificed everything he had. But Jesus on the cross didn't just sacrifice everything he had. He sacrificed everything he was. He laid down his life for us. So at the center of the gospel is the cross, At the cross, we find incredible grace, but we also see the sacrificial nature of God himself, and the sacrifice he made for us was his very own life. This is the kind of life that he invites us to, and if we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, in other words, if the Holy Spirit is transforming us day by day to become more like him, we will grow in our willingness to sacrifice in every area of our lives, because that's the nature of God. He's a sacrificial God and He calls us to be sacrificial people. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and I love it so much that I had it tattooed on my wrist. And it says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me daily. How often? Daily. That's the call of a Christian. To deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So we get a vision of the kingdom, it captures our attention and our affection. But when we find the king, the sacrificial king, it shapes our lives. The kingdom of God costs, it costs Jesus his life. And it will cost us the same. The call to the Christian life is an invitation to a life not of comfort, but of sacrifice. Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. The cost of sacrifice is our lives. As we lay our lives down for the one who laid down his life for us, we will have an incredible impact in this world. There's a vision for sacrifice. There's a cost of sacrifice. And it's demonstrated in the appropriate attitude of sacrifice. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and he bought that field. In the parable, the man literally sold everything he had and there's no hint of reluctance. He's not over there going, well, I'm not sure. I don't know whether I can do it. I don't know whether I should. I'm having second thoughts. No, no, there's no hint of reluctance whatsoever. In fact, he can't wait to lay it all down. And then what he receives to what he's giving away, he invests back into the thing that's now become the most important thing in his life, in his joy. This is the attitude that God desires that we have towards sacrifice. Like the Apostle Paul, that which was so important has now been surpassed by something that is so much weightier, so much greater, it's so important that now everything else just becomes like rubbish. He says, I'm going to let go of this so I can grab hold of that. And yet as Christians, I think we're often reluctant to let go of what we have and what we can see to grab hold of what we can't see, the kingdom of God. Become so attached to the stuff that we don't count the cost, and if we do, we so often do it reluctantly, doubtfully, and conservatively. But this man gave it joyfully, and God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus, once again, is our ultimate example when it comes to the attitude of sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 12, following on from last week's chapter. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cost of sacrifice and the attitude of sacrifice flow from the vision of sacrifice. We say that again. The cost of sacrifice and the attitude of sacrifice flow from the vision of sacrifice. For the joy set before him. Jesus wasn't feeling joyful in the moments of sacrifice. We look at the Garden of Gethsemane. He pleaded with his father, if there's any other way other than suffering and death, then please take it from me. But he said, not my will be done, but yours. When he was hanging on the cross after being beaten and flogged and whipped and tortured and spat on, I'm sure he felt more agony than joy in that moment. But for the joy... Set before him. He submitted himself to the will of the Father to sacrifice for that joy in the future. What was the joy set before him? Well, I think the joy was to do the will of the Father. That brings incredible joy in our lives. But I also think it was a vision of the kingdom that he looked through the cross. And he saw what the kingdom of God would look like. And only he could open the door for us. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so hanging on the cross for the joy set before him, he had a vision of the kingdom and what it will be like in eternity for you and me with him. And he said, it's worth it. You know, there are many times that we will have to endure this life for the joy set before us. In a now-but-not-yet kingdom, much of our joy will be delayed just as much of the kingdom is delayed until Christ returns. But let me tell you, when it comes to that moment when he returns, it'll all be worth it. There won't be a single regret about anything we've sacrificed for his kingdom. Last week we read in Hebrews 11 of all these uh, different characters, imperfect characters that live extraordinary lives because they live by faith. And it says they're commended because they live by faith. But it also told us that they did that because they longed for something Greater than what they could see in this present life. And then it goes on to say, together with us, those people in Hebrews 11, together with us, you and me as followers of Christ, will be made perfect on that day when Christ returns. Let me tell you, on that day when Christ returns, there will be no more longing. Longing is a one way street. We won't get there and, and pine for what we used to have. We won't look back there with regret thinking, if only I'd made a few more dollars. If only I'd kept more for myself, if only I'd played more footy, if only I'd done more hobbies, if only my business grew just that little bit more, if only I hadn't sacrificed for the kingdom, that will not happen, I guarantee you, when Jesus returns, because longing's a one-way street. We long for something greater, but when we get there, we won't look back for a second. It'll be the greatest day of our lives. Without a shadow of doubt, we will be awestruck by the beauty of God that every sacrifice we made in this life, was worth it. When we're captivated by that vision, a vision of the kingdom, not just for us, but when we long for that for our friends and our family and our community and the many people around us that are separated from God, as we long for that, when that becomes our greatest treasure, when it becomes our precious pearl, we'll count the cost of sacrifice and the attitude of sacrifice will not be reluctance, but it'll be one of joy, incredible joy, What we can invest today with our lives and everything God's given us can actually mean that someone else would come to know Jesus. Man, there's nothing but joy attached to that. What an incredible privilege that everything we've been given has been given to us to invest into something that's eternal. I want to encourage you today to be people who count the cost of sacrifice and to do it with joy in serving, in giving, in relationships, in love. I want you to count the cost of sacrifice for the joy of ...that's set before you. Today's the end of our Brick series. In a few minutes we're going to receive pledges for a, a building fund... ...and a building that's going to be built right here in the officer community. You would have received your pledging forms. There's many ways you can give. You can give in a once-off donation. You can give weekly. You can pledge an amount over the next couple of years... ...that you'll pay off in lump sums as you go. But I want to tell you today that the building's not our vision. Jesus is our vision. Jesus is our vision. He'll always be our vision... But our building is going to be an effective resource to help facilitate our vision long-term. It's a stake in the ground, in the ground. It's a step of faith to declare that we're serious about being here, that God has placed us in this community, and we believe our community can be transformed by the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago at our two-year celebration, we paused and we remembered some of the many moments that have made this journey so special so far. And we think there's even more of those to come in the future, but today we've arrived at another very significant moment in our short history. By God's grace, we've grown from a church plant to a fully functioning church. We've seen God do incredible things, and we've grown so rapidly that we're running out of options for places to meet. And so we started plans, you can see them on the back wall today, of putting together an idea for a facility that will be a place of worship, discipleship, and mission. And I remember uh, several months ago at our first ever leadership discussion about a building, what it would be like... I remember the blackboard wall at the church office and I wrote just one question in the middle of the board and it said, if you could use only one word to describe what a building would be, what would it be? And so of the 20 leaders or so there, they all wrote these different words and they were all really good, but mine was the best. And I just wrote the word buzzing. That I see a building that's going to buzz with activity, not just church activity, but our community coming into a place where they're going to encounter God for the first time, a place where people want to come to, a place where people in our community at times will need to come to. And I'm really excited about what God's going to do through that incredible resource. I said last week it's going to be like an epicenter where where things happen and they start here and they sort of go out from the epicenter and from that activity in the building, we'll disciple people, we'll send missionaries, we'll plant churches and what God does will reverberate throughout eternity and throughout our community for generations to come. You have an opportunity today to sacrifice for something that could impact, maybe even change your life. Change the lives of your children, your children's children for generations to come. And we're only having this conversation this morning because of the incredible sacrifice that was made by members at our church about 12 months ago to buy a block of land for over $1.5 million and donate it to the church. When they made that decision, it was about a year earlier than that. We were looking for a block of land for about a year. But when they made that decision, there was barely even a church. It was just one optimistic pastor and a small core team of people. And yet they made a decision at that time to to buy a block of land to donate to the church. And I'll tell you why. Because they were captivated by a kingdom vision for officer to see people saved and see a church thrive in this area. And it was a seesaw moment. It was a seesaw moment where they realized the weight of that was greater than anything they could use that $1.5 million for. Now, I don't know what I'd do with a $1.5 million, probably build a church, but I'm not really sure. I've never had it. I'm a pastor and I don't do taslotos. There's a good chance I never will. But I don't know what I'd do with it but I can only imagine there's a lot of things you could do. You could go around the world a few times. You could buy a really state-of-the-art caravan. You could get a fleet of luxury cars. You could go on a pretty long cruise. You could purchase multiple investment properties. But it all seems like rubbish when you get a glimpse of the kingdom. Then why would I invest my whole life in all that stuff when I can do something so much greater for the kingdom of God? These people saw the joy set before them and the blessing on the other side of sacrifice and they believed that it was worth it it was an incredible sacrifice but for them it was the only thing that made sense and i was there when we signed the contracts let me tell you firsthand that there wasn't a hint of reluctance it wasn't a moment where you thought oh do i sign the check do i hand it over or I just keep the money there was never a hint of reluctance We celebrated their sacrifice with a strong drink, coffee. And we signed the contracts with great joy because we thought and dreamed about the joy set before us in the future. And you know what? Many of you people are part of the joy that we saw in that moment. You're here because we were willing to step out and these people were willing to sacrifice. The Apostle Paul in Philippians calls people his joy and his crown. And there are many people in this community who are right now far from God but they're going to come to know Him. They're going to come to know Him through the people that follow Baptist Church and other churches and I'm incredibly excited that there are many people right now that don't even know that but one day they're going to be our joy and crown and they're going to sit here on a Sunday morning saved by the grace of Jesus Christ because we're willing to step out and invest sacrificially. There is joy on the other side of the sacrifice. So we have the land but now it's our turn. It's a moment to get a glimpse of Of the kingdom. It's our time to count the cost of sacrifice in this particular area of our lives, and it's our opportunity now to sacrifice with joy. So, I'm going to invite the music team forward now, and they're going to quietly play on an appropriate song that they've chosen called History Makers. And today is a day, it's a moment in history. We have an opportunity to invest in something eternal. And as they do that, the ushers are going to hand round the offering buckets to receive our pledges. And once they've been received, I'm going to pray over those pledges and we'll stand together to sing this song together. And so today, let's give. But let's not give out of reluctance or obligation. Let's give with joyful hearts about what God can do in and through us in the years to come.